Welcome everyone to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Ready or not, welcome. Welcome back, you guys, for another episode of the Two Tongues Podcast. Another solo episode uh, for you this week. Um, You're welcome. This one I'm excited about because we're wrapping up Chalmers Conscious Mind. It means a couple things. It means you guys get to hear my take on Chalmers Conscious Mind start to finish in three parts, which I'm pretty impressed with. Last time I tried to cover a book, I think Maps of Meaning took six episodes, and we didn't cover everything. Um, Chalmers Conscious Mind was a difficult book, maybe every bit as difficult as that, and uh, we're wrapping it up at three, so I feel good about that. I think I'm getting better at um, editing down the notes. Um, Hopefully, you guys will notice. It'll be uh, an improved experience. Um, Cutting out the fat. Shout out to Matthew. Cutting out the fat. Uh, All right, so Chalmers Conscious Mind Part 3. So I know it's been a little while since we talked David Chalmers. Uh, We did uh, Peter Scherstedt Hughes last time. Um, This one, well, let me just do this. Let me just recap because we did have Part 1 and Part 2, and Part 1 goes back a little ways. In in Part 1, when I introduced David Chalmers in his book, The Conscious Mind, um, I kind of led with what Chalmers is most known for. He's known for coming up with a new phrase to describe uh, the problem of of consciousness that is impossible to explain. Um, You know, we used to call it the mind-body problem. Um, He's the one that said, no, really, there's there's something more specific than that. It's something called the hard problem. And he breaks this down into two. And it kind of falls along the same boundaries or along the same lines as the scientific narrative. So the idea is um, that there's psychological um, that there's a psychological problem of understanding consciousness. That's your brain and how it works, your nervous system, you know, all those ins and outs, the mechanical stuff going on in your body. And then there's the phenomenal part. And that's what he calls the hard part. The phenomenal part is our experience. It's what it's like to be us. Um those are the things that you can't explain through physical means. And that kind of led us into the second episode with this word that he brings up called supervenience, where he's like, look, um, we could figure out uh, everything that um, underlies the physics of the world. We could figure out um, all, the, all the laws of physics, all the fundamental particles, um, how they relate to each other. Uh, we could figure out all those details, how they interact. Um, and that's going to tell us everything that we need to know about the world, um, all of those physical things. 
And again, that's what I mean by saying that it follows this scientific paradigm. But then David Chalmers says, except, so now he's going to bring in a condition. It's if the physical laws will explain everything, all of these psychological, what he calls the easy problem of consciousness. We'll know about how all that works. What we won't know is why we have an experience of it. Why do we have a conscious experience of it? You know, it's one thing to become injured and to recognize that you're injured and your body goes and heals that injury. Um, but you can imagine all of that happening, happening mechanistically. The question is, why should you have an experience of pain when you injure yourself? Your body knows it's been injured, it's healing it, it's doing everything it needs to do. Why is this added bit of, of what he calls qualia, this phenomenal thing happening, this thing we call pain. Why is it even there? That's hard to explain. Way harder to explain than all of the nuts and bolts of figuring out how the physics and chemistry in, it works in the brain and the electro, electrical, electrical and chemical impulses going through your nervous system. That's the easy part, according to Chalmers. And so this idea of supervenience was brought up in part two, which is just saying what the scientific narrative says that everything supervenes on physical laws, everything depends on physical laws. When you look out at the world around you, when you examine yourself and why you do the things you do, all of that can be explained in uh, by referring to physical laws. And it's what he calls reductive. And this is, again, very, very scientific. We're used to this. Uh, it's reductive in the sense that um, you can explain one thing by pointing to something smaller, something constituent. So you say, you know, here's a human being, this is what it's like. Well, how do you explain a human being? Well, you can just break it down into parts and say, well, a human being is composed of, you know, the level of organs and the level of cells and the level of um, molecules and the level of atoms. And, you know, you, you can explain reductively how each phase of, of this um macro being uh, works and that's all the sat that's the satisfactory answer that's all you need to be able to do and that's what science more or less today will tell you and David Chalmers just pumps the brakes and says that's all fine and good and I completely agree except so here we here we have the except again except doesn't explain consciousness so consciousness does not seem to depend on the physical laws um, and doesn't seem to depend on the physical at all it doesn't seem to be a material thing at all what's going on and where we ended part two was with Chalmers promising that he could give us a non-reductive explanation of consciousness it's like we don't have to point to what consciousness is made of because it's not made of anything smaller consciousness is fundamental so he's promising to be able to give us a theory um, or point us in the direction of a theory that might be somehow scientific, that might be somehow testable, that with enough time and effort we could figure out a theory of everything. A theory of everything. And according to Chalmers, a theory of everything is not going to be as simple as what physics is trying to do now. What they're trying to do now is to take the laws of gravity, uh, general relativity, and the laws of quantum mechanics and uh, merge them together so that they can fit together in one cohesive theory. Right now they don't. So the rules that we know of that govern the very largest things and the rules that we know of that govern the very smallest things, those rules are not the same rules. And we're trying to figure out a way of merging them together. We're trying to figure out the formula that makes sense of them both together. And science says when we do that, then we'll have a theory of everything.
And Chalmers says, pump the brakes. So I love that. I love that. You know, that's why one of the reasons I like having Kyle on the podcast so much as a friend, but also as a podcast host, because, because Kyle tells me to pump the brakes. He's like, look, you know, you can keep right on rolling, but pump the brakes. Let's back up a little bit and start poking holes. And that's what Chalmers is, is so good at doing. He's saying that if we can unify the laws that govern gravity and the laws that govern quantum mechanics, we won't have a theory of everything. We'll have a better theory, but it won't be a theory of everything. Why? Because it's le- it leaves something out. What is it leaving out? Consciousness, man. Consciousness. You're not going to have a theory of everything until you can explain consciousness also. So, today, we hope to hear just what this theory might look like from Chalmers himself. A non-reductive theory of consciousness, or something that's going to give us um, a framework for future scientists and academics and philosophers to finally get to a theory of everything. Sounds good? Sounds good, David. I like it. I like it if you can do it. So what do you have for me today? All right. So let's dig in. First couple quotes here are going to be a little bit of a refresher, but let me just start with this. Chalmers says, The failure of supervenience directly implies that materialism is false. There are features of the world over and above the physical features. Okay, so just to refresh your memory, when he says the failure of supervenience, he's talking about he's talking about those physical laws that everything depends on that he was able to to demonstrate um, in the prior prior chapters, and we talked about this in the prior episodes, that consciousness doesn't supervene on the physical. So that's the failure of supervenience he's talking about. It's like everything depends on the physical, and they supervene, and you can explain them all that way, except for consciousness. So for for that reason, he says, materialism is false. It can't be the complete answer because because there's something beyond the physical. Okay, so um, he says there are features of the world over and above the physical. So what are those features? Those are those are the phenomenal features. Those are those are our qualia. That's the experience. What it's like to be a human being. Um, you know the things that we can't explain physically, like our experience of pain, our experience of love, our experience of you know commitment, our experience of, of colors, our, our sense experiences, the quality of our sense experiences. Not just the ability to see. That's not what I mean. I'm not talking about you know detection. I'm talking about what it's like to see. That. Okay, so that is what is what you have in the world over and above the physical that the physical can't explain. And Chalmers says, consciousness carries phenomenal information. And I'm going to go back to an example that I, I used in a prior episode because Chalmers uses it. When he says consciousness carries phenomenal information, what he, what he, what he means here is that all of the physical data, all of the information out there about the physical things in the world, the forces and the matter and all their interactions, that's not everything. There's something else going on that's not physical. There's information that's available that's not physical. And, um, and here's the thought experiment that he, in, in a nutshell that he uses to demonstrate that. He says, imagine a future world where you have this neuroscientist named Mary. And Mary studies color vision. She's the world's leading expert on color vision. And we're putting this thought experiment in the future because um, one of the things we have to assume in this thought experiment is that science has figured out everything 
about um, the physics that underlies uh, vision, sight, um, you know, all the things you can imagine that might uh, that you might have to understand to know what color vision is all about from start to finish. We know all of it. The thing about Mary, though, is that Mary, even though she's a scientist studying color vision, she's been kept in a box. She's been kept away from color her entire life. She's only ever seen black and white and shades of gray. Mary can tell you everything there is to know about color experience. She can tell you how the light you know, is reflected off the objects, how it's absorbed, how it bounces off your retina, how, you know, all of the things down to the, to the fundamentals of, the, of the, the photons of light and all of that. She can tell you every single detail about it. And the question is asked, does Mary know everything there is to know about color vision? And you're kind of leaning towards yes. You're kind of leaning towards yes in that situation. And then Chalmers says, all right, wrench in the gears. Let's say Mary finally gets out of her box and she sees red for the first time. I don't think any of us can argue that Mary, who's supposed to have known everything there is to know about color vision, she has all of the data, all of the information about color vision. But the moment she sees red for the first time, she knows something new. Doesn't she? She knows something new. She knows what it's like to experience red. And it has a certain way that that experience is. A red experience is a certain kind of experience. It feels a certain way. You, can, you know, you even hear people use the word warm to describe a color like red. Like, what does that mean? How can you, how can you ever have that level of information if you've never seen it, if you've never actually had the experience? So that is that additional piece of information. Now Mary knows everything there is to know about red. She knows all the physical stuff. Now she also knows the phenomenal stuff. So that there are, clearly there's information above and beyond the physical. And now Mary has all of it. So this is what we're talking about here. We're talking about information coming from the physical world and coming from the phenomenal world. All right, so now we're going to really get into it. So Chalmers says this. <clears throat> he says, physics postulates a number of fundamental features of the world. Space-time, mass energy, charge, spin, and so on. It also posits a number of fundamental laws. Once the fundamental laws and features are set in place, almost everything about the world follows. This is why a fundamental theory in physics is sometimes known as as a theory of everything. But the fact that consciousness does not supervene on the physical shows us that this theory is not quite a theory of everything. To bring consciousness within the scope of a fundamental theory, we need to introduce new fundamental properties and laws. Okay, so we'll pause there. So this is interesting. He's saying like, if you ask a physicist today, what is the world made of at the most fundamental level? You break everything down as much as you can. What you're left with are features like space and time, which we sort of think of as one thing now. Mass and energy, which we sort of think of as one thing now. Charge and spin, which are properties that fundamental particles have. It's like, that's it. Those are the, those are the qualities that we know about that exist at the most basic levels. 
and they explain everything that you need to know. They, they, everything that, you, that exists in the physical world follows necessarily from all of these different things, space-time, mass charge, you know, all that. Um, it all flows from that. If, if space-time, mass, energy, charge, and spin exists, then everything that happens in the world right now, everything that it's become, everything that it will become, all of that's packaged up in it, right? It, it all flows from there. Except consciousness. Consciousness doesn't flow from there. Consciousness is not explained by that. So he's saying what we need to do is to consider that there are some other laws, fundamental properties or laws, just like all the others in physics that we talk about know about, that we have to be able to propose here to solve the problem of consciousness. We're missing something, so it must be a fundamental property or law. That's interesting. It's also humble. It's not something you hear from scientists very often. You know, a lot, a lot of times those people, they know everything, you know? And, and even if they don't, and even if they know logically that they don't know everything, they seem like they know everything. They talk like, they, like they're sure, like they're certain, like they know everything. Chalmers is not doing that. He's saying something's missing. Something fundamental might be missing. Then he proposes this. He says, perhaps we take experience itself as a fundamental feature of the world, alongside space-time, spin, charge, and the like. Interesting. Suppose experience is another one of these fundamental, non-reducible features of the world. If we know everything there is to know about the laws that govern physics, and we can somehow know the laws that govern experience, then maybe we'll have a more complete picture. Then maybe we'll have the full picture. Hmm... What else does he have to say here? He says, where we have new fundamental properties, we also have new fundamental laws. So he's expecting that we're going to be able to, to, to uh, point to certain fundamental properties uh, beyond space-time, mass, charge, energy, that kind of thing. And that they're going to be, that those, that those things are going to be subject to laws, just like everything Everything in physics is subject to laws. He expects whatever this new fundamental property is will also be governed by some laws. Then he goes on, he says, There is good reason to believe that there is a lawful relationship between physical properties and conscious experience. And any lawful relationship must be supported by fundamental laws. Okay, so this is bolstering his argument that we're, what we're looking for is some something fundamental, some kind of governing fundamental laws. And it's interesting because he says this, you know, there is good reason to believe that there's a lawful relationship between the physical and, and consciousness. It's like, yeah, I mean, that's quite the statement to make and just kind of move right along. Is there good reason to believe that there are laws, there's a relationship between the physical and the conscious? I think really what he's pointing to here is that what we're conscious of seems to be something physical or always associated, related, or correlated to something physical. So that's the relationship. And we'll talk more about that, but it's really no deeper than that. There is some relationship between the physical and, and conscious, the co consciousness. Uh, when I look out at the world and I have a conscious experience, presumably there's something physical out there that is associated with that experience. Um, <clears throat> so there's some relationship there. He says, once we have a fundamental theory of consciousness... To accompany a fundamental theory in physics, we may truly have a theory of everything. 
All right, promises, promises, David, let's hear it. He says, a physical theory gives a theory of physical processes. And a psychophysical theory tells us how those processes give rise to experience. Okay, so now he's painting this with with broad brushstrokes, how he's planning on making this argument. Okay, so he's like, we have a physical theory that tells us everything about the physical things that are going on. You know, how things are moving, uh, how they're interacting with each other. That theory gives us the laws that governs all of that. What we need really is a psychophysical theory that tells us how those physical things give rise to experience. Now, I, th- I think it's interesting for a couple reasons. This idea of psychophysical, it's two words, you know, the, the, the psyche and the physical. What he's talking about is something that bridges consciousness, that's the psyche, to the physical, something that, that a framework that we can use to explain them both. The way he puts this, though, is that... Um, that physical processes give rise to experience. And I don't think even he agrees with the way that sentence reads, and we'll see that towards the end. It's not like the physics comes first, and then the experience emerges. That's exactly the opposite. That's exactly what he's been arguing against for the whole book. It's not that consciousness emerges from, from physics. It's not that consciousness emerges from physical processes. So I think this is a little bit misleading, but what he's, what he's getting at here is that there might be some sort of bridging laws, so what he calls psychophysical, that helps us understand how the physical and, and conscious experience relate to one another. And then if we had that, we would, we would know at least something about consciousness, uh, at least something more than what we know today. All right, he goes on, he says, the view I advocate allows that we can explain consciousness in terms of basic natural laws. There need be nothing especially transcendental about consciousness. It is just another natural phenomenon. All that has happened is that our picture of nature was expanded. All right, so this is an interesting little phrase as well. And uh, I don't want to steal too much thunder from my conclusion here, but let me just point, point something out. So when he says, um, he's just repeating here that his, that his opinion is that consciousness is going to be explainable in terms of the laws, and that those laws are natural. Um, then he goes on. This sentence really is the one that I think is it, it's um, <clears throat> pointing kind of a, it's a little bit of a Freudian slip. It's pointing a mirror back at his own presumptions. So let me just read this again, and I'll tell you what I mean. He says, there need be nothing especially transcendental about consciousness. It's just another natural phenomenon. So this is David Chalmers saying when he says there's nothing especially transcendental about it. He's saying that there's nothing magical, there's nothing spiritual, there's nothing... There's nothing... uh, There's nothing spiritual, you know, nothing mystical about it. That's what he's pointing to. He's... He's trying to convince the reader, and maybe he's trying to convince himself, that there's no reason for, for you to, in tackling this problem of consciousness, to resort to explanations uh, like God or magic or something that's, that's not you know, within the realm of, uh, re- of reality, of physical reality. And I just think that goes so contrary to everything else that David Chalmers is saying, that it, it makes me think he's saying it because he feels like he has to, um, either either to make this go over better with philosophers or scientists that are atheists, uh, 
um, to avoid this sort of perception of woo-woo that he's that he's talking, you know, nonsense. Um, but then even this idea of he says it's just an, another natural phenomenon. This idea that nature is somehow strictly physical. I mean, he's been arguing against that this whole time by saying that that the qualia aren't explained by the physical. And so nature includes the physical and the non-physical, you know, whatever that means. So to say that consciousness can be explained as just another natural phenomenon, that doesn't take the woo out of it for me. It all has to do with how you define nature. A lot of people define nature very, very similarly to the way other people define God. Very similarly to the way scientists think about a, a theory of everything. What is nature? Nature is that which the cosmos emerged from. It's the laws that govern the cosmos and how it operates and how it interacts. Um, you know, it's the source of being. Um, so, again, there are people that, that would very, very easily use that same definition in talking about something like God, something magical, something non-physical. And I think that Chalmers has a little bit of confusion there. Like, he's tempted in the, the direction of mysticism sometimes. And he f seems to feel reluctant to go there. He's not entirely reluctant to go there. He does it more than most philosophers do, for sure. But I just think this is him being careful. There's nothing especially transcendental about consciousness. Really? It seems to transcend the physical. David, you've been telling us this, you know, this whole time. If it transcends the physical, it's pretty goddamn transcendental, isn't it? All right, so he goes on, he says... Consider experience as a fundamental property that is not a physical property, and the psychophysical laws as fundamental laws of nature that are not laws of physics. Okay, fair enough. He says, perhaps the physical and the phenomenal will turn out to be two different aspects of a single encompassing kind, and something like the way that matter and energy turn out to be two aspects of a single kind. It may turn out that the duality of the physical and the phenomenal can be subsumed under a grander monism. But this will not be a monism of the physical alone. I think that's great. I think, I think any scientist um, talks about the beauty of nature and the simplicity of the math that goes behind it. So when, when they're talking about coming up with these formulas and theories, um, they look for them to be um, beautiful, and simple and elegant because all of the ones that they've managed to figure out to date seem to be like that. They, they, they simplify and become beautiful um, formulas uh, mathematically and, and form beautiful models. And so that seems to be how scientists assume that nature operates. And you can see that. I mean, you can see how nature strives for efficiency, you know, and you can imagine that that process would, um, you know, would roll up into some beautiful, efficient formula. And so that's what, that's what he's looking for uh, here. And we, we've seen that he points out matter and energy that, that goes back to, um, that goes back to Einstein, and we, we've talked about before, but we used to believe matter was one thing and energy was another, and they had different rules that govern them, and we thought they were separate. And then one day Einstein came along and said E equals MC squared, and we realized that matter and energy really aren't two things, but one thing. And the laws that govern uh, them individually, there's actually a more graceful explanation. 
that an elegant explanation that explains them both as one thing. And and just in case you think that's a one-off, the same thing happened with electricity and magnetism. We used to think they were two separate phenomena. We used to think there were laws that governed them separately. And then one day we realized, no, the, the, there's something called electromagnetism. And it's really just one thing. And so this is what he's pointing to here. He says, maybe all this talk about the physical and the phenomenal being different, that maybe this is something like our old understanding of matter and energy or of electricity and magnetism, that really this is... The physical and the phenomenal are really just one thing, and we've got to figure out the laws that make them so. And that's beautiful. It's beautiful for lots of reasons, not not just because it accords really well with all these other physical laws, um, also because it rings of something we, we've encountered in mythology before, something that Jordan Peterson talked about, the Ouroboros. The Ouroboros, uh, if you guys remember, is a symbol. It's a symbol that represents, you know... Um, it represents God. It's usually depicted as the union of opposites, and it's something that's seen as responsible for the birth of the cosmos. That's, that's why we talk about it in terms of God, because that's what God is, right? Something that's responsible for the cosmos. And the Ouroboros is the union of opposites. It's something that, that unifies two different things. And I just think that's interesting, because if the physical and the phenomenal can be unified, just like matter and energy or electricity and magnetism were able to be unified, um, then that does give us, what, or may give us, what Chalmers calls a theory of everything. I just think, I just think it's interesting that the, the way that somebody like Jordan Peterson describes God, the Ouroboros, um, and the way that Chalmers is, is pointing to a, a path towards a theory of everything, Unifying opposites into oneness is something that's elegant and efficient. That's the same sort of thing you see in mythology, and the same sort of thing you see in physics, and it's this exactly the same sort of thing that Chalmers is hoping we will find to explain consciousness. In any case, I think Chalmers is more mystical than he lets on. Um, he goes on, he says, We saw in chapter 2 that there are two classes of facts that do not supervene on particular physical facts. Facts about consciousness and facts about causation. He says, It is natural to speculate that these two failures might be intimately related and that consciousness and causation have some deep metaphysical tie. Perhaps, for instance, experience itself is a kind of causal nexus. A relationship like this might suggest a role for experience in causation. Now that's a lot, but I'm going to get to the point. This is one of those things, and I underlined it in my notes, it's one of those things that shows me that there's a mystic vein in Mr. Chalmers that he dances around. And this is one of them. When he points out that consciousness doesn't depend on physical laws, he also points out that causation doesn't seem to depend on physical laws. Why things interact with each other, why one thing causes another, they can be explained in terms of physical laws um, to some degree, but they don't, they don't depend on them. And it's, it's, hard to see how, um, it's hard to see how two things that don't depend on physical laws when there's basically everything depends on physical laws. If we can come, with, come up with consciousness and causation and say that neither of them uh, supervene on the physical, 
then there's a way in which you want to you want to consider that those things might be one thing consciousness and causation and that is very very mystical think about it think about it a couple steps a couple steps uh, further if consciousness and causation are the same thing when we're talking about we're talking about origins we're talking about how the cosmos got here what we're talking about is cause and effect what we're talking about is what aristotle called the unmoved mover the first cause right so the first cause is what took nothing and made it into the cosmos the big bang that's the first cause when chalmers says that consciousness and causation might be something like one thing here that's what i think of so if the first cause was the big bang and the, the cosmos emerged from this first cause what is that some people say that's god i say that consciousness and god are basically the same concepts they can't there's there's not a there's not a difference to me in those words exactly so if consciousness and causation are the same and consciousness is god then I have no problem whatsoever thinking about what's moving things in the universe, what what caused the Big Bang to begin with, and what what lives and moves within the cosmos. That thing causes everything. Chalmers says that might be consciousness. I tend to agree. I would just call that God. And I think that's a really interesting thing for him to point out. And you notice how he does it in a way that doesn't, doesn't say it like I said it. It avoids that, that problem of bringing God into the equation. He calls it the causal nexus. What's the causal nexus, science man? What does that mean? I mean, no disrespect, David. I, I mean, no disrespect. But causal nexus, that's saying some abstract thing that causes everything. What is that, man? We've been calling that God for thousands of years. Causal nexus. All right. He goes on, he says... A proposal like this has been developed by Rosenberg, who argues that because of these parallels, it may be that experience realizes causation in the actual world. I'm going to read that again. It may be that experience realizes causation. He says, on this view, causation needs to be realized by something. If this is so, it may be that it is the very existence of experience that allows for causal relationships to exist. All right. So how do we... I don't know how to illustrate for you the, the weight of that, of that statement. It may be that it... He says it may be that it is the very existence of experience that allows for the causal relations to exist. So when he says the very existence of experience, we're talking about consciousness. Consciousness is what experiences. So those are, those are two words for the same thing. And so if consciousness allows for a causal, causal relations to exist, what this brings to my mind is something that I've quoted before, but there's a physicist named Robert Dykraft who works for the um, Institute for Advanced Studies. And what he said was that he was trying to describe space-time. And he said one of the explanations for space-time and, and why it exists at all has to do with entanglement, quantum entanglement. He says that particles become entangled with each other. And somehow that entanglement creates this space that exists between them. It like manifests space. 
and, and again, this is sort of speculative and hypothetical, but you can imagine two particles being entangled. You could call that a relationship between the two. And that relationship causes space to emerge. Space, the place we exist in. It's like it didn't exist before, but it exists in the interaction between these two quantum particles. Like that's mind-blowing shit. And he's saying it's consciousness that allows for, these, for the causal relationship. So maybe, um, looking at it from this uh, perspective of Digraph, that... Um, that that uh, you know, um, consciousness itself this call allows the causal relation to exist that manifests the space that we we exist in something crazy like that. So I think that's I think that's interesting. But the other thing that maybe is more interesting is this word that Rosenberg uses. So he says, Rosenberg argues that it may be that experience realizes causation realizes causation. Okay, pump the brakes. Let's pump the brakes together for a second. Experience realizes causation. So you have a cause, you have a force of cause and effect, you have a something, something we're calling causation. And that it exists, but not until it's realized. That's interesting. What, is it, what does he mean by realized? Well, he says that it's realized in experience. So you have to have experience for causation to be realized. I'm really interested in what he means by realize. Um, the reason is, and we'll get to this in a bit, but in this, in this context, to say realized is to say something like embodied, right? So for, for, for causation to have some, for a cause to have some effect... It must have something to effect, you know? There must be a place and an, and an object that it can act upon, right? It has to be an effect for a cause to be a cause. They go together, cause and effect. Without one, you don't have the other. So it's like that something has to be embodied. It has to be made real. And according to Rosenberg, that's done through experience. That's done through consciousness. God damn, that's a mystical thing to say. And then this, this idea of realize is, is interesting for another reason. Um, if I just go back to kind of my own experience, my own mystic intuition from, from having this sort of mystic experience in the past, one of the things that comes through in that experience is that, is that consciousness fulfills itself. You know, or you could say God fulfills itself. Um, and it's a strange thing to make sense of, but it comes through in the mystic experience really clearly like boy how do i put this i'll put it like this um what i said before that what consciousness is is something that experiences i think we can all go with that consciousness experiences and i've said before in the past that if consciousness is all there is which is the same which is a, a, a way of saying that consciousness is god right which is which i say so if consciousness is all there is, then what consciousness is experiencing is, is God. It, it's itself. Consciousness experiencing consciousness. Now, this is weird and wordy, but understand that when I say consciousness is that which experiences, 
and what it experiences is itself. What I'm saying is something like this. The thing that experiences becomes what it can experience. So experience doesn't exist without consciousness. We, we, you know, that part makes sense. But imagine consciousness becoming the thing that it can experience. That's what I mean when I say consciousness fulfills itself. And that, and that seems to parallel what Rosenberg means when he says experience realizes causation. It's something like it's self-contained somehow. And we'll, we'll try to flush that out more. Uh, I feel like I'm getting bogged down on that, so let's keep going. He says, this proposal seems to lead to a version of panpsychism, the view that everything is conscious. I like that. Let's keep going. He says, the strategy to which I am most drawn stems from the observation that physical theory only characterizes its basic entities relationally in terms of their relations to other entities. All right, so this takes a little bit of explaining, and there's more to the, to the quote, but I'll stop for a second. Um, what he's, you remember how we've had these arguments before, and I, I don't think we've gotten to any satisfying conclusion, but we've asked the question before that when science tries to explain what something is, that it, there's a way in which it seems to only be describing what it does. It doesn't really describe what it is. You know, what an electron is is still kind of a mystery to me. What it does is interacts with other atoms. It, it, you know, it has a property called, you know, called spin or charge or whatever it is, and that allows them to interact with other things or to move in a certain way. Those are all what it does. Not exactly the same as what it is. Um, and this is what he's pointing out here. He's, he says physical theory talks about, you know, physics, talks about how things are relationally, how they interact with each other, where they are in relation to one another. You know, that's how the physical theory works. It describes things, the relationship between things. And that might seem arbitrary. It might seem like you're missing the point. Maybe you are. Um, but there's something really significant about the relation between things. And we talked about a guy named Ian McGilchrist before as an author. Um, I, love, I love the way he speaks and writes. Um, but he talked about something called betweenness. And he talked about this you know, in, in the frame of how the brain works. But he also talked about this in terms of music. And so this might be a way of explaining why understanding the relationship between things is so important. And so it's like this. Um, imagine you don't know anything about the notes that make up a song. Um, just the relationship that they have um, between one another. This is the betweenness that uh, McGilchrist talks about. He's like, you know, it's not just about the notes. It's, it's about the spaces in between the notes and how the notes all fit together. You know, it's like without, without spaces in between the notes, without moments of silence, everything bleeds together and you, and you lose the musical component to it. What the music is, is not necessarily the notes or the spaces. It's both. It's the relationship between the notes and one another and between the spaces and one another and between the notes and the spaces. So almost... Everything you need to know about the music is the relationship between the notes. It's the relational information, not, not the notes themselves. 
And so this is the idea. This is if we go back to the physical theory and we say it explains the relationship among things, then then you can understand just like the relationship between the notes, you can understand the song that way. And this is how people understand the cosmos. It's it's, it's you still are missing what the notes are. You're still missing in physics what consciousness is, but you know the relation between them and that tells you a lot. Maybe it tells you the most important, especially with the uh, example of the song, seems to tell you what's most important. It's a fucking song. It's the relation between the notes. That's the song. All right, he goes on. He says, basic particles are characterized in terms of their propensity to interact with other particles. Their mass and charge is specified, but all that ultimately comes to is a propensity to be accelerated in certain ways by forces and so on. So this is him saying that to know a, a to know a fundamental particle's mass and charge, that's not to know what it is. It's only to know how it's likely to re- interact with something else. That's all mass and charge mean. And he goes on. He says each entity is characterized by its relation to the to other entities, and these entities are characterized by their relationship to other entities, and so on forever. The picture of the physical world that this yields is that of a giant causal flux, but tells us nothing about what all this causation relates. Reference to the proton is fixed as the thing that causes interactions of a certain kind with other entities. But what it is, or what it is that that thing is doing, uh, uh, fuck that all up, let me read that again. He says, reference to the proton is fixed as the thing that causes interactions of a certain kind with other entities. But what is the thing that is doing the causing? This is a matter about which physical theory is silent. Okay, so again he calls... He, he says that the picture of the world is something like a giant causal flux. So that's a very abstract thing. It's a, a reference to a, uh, another way of speaking about God as far as I'm concerned. But let's, let, let's give that to him. A giant causal flux. He says, but it tells us nothing about what all this causation relates. It tells us nothing about what, what's really there, only about what's going on, okay? And then he, he uses the specific example of the proton. It's like you can, you can see how it's interacting with other things, but what's doing the causing? What's, cause, what's, what's causing that to interact? What's the causal force? What is that? And he says, physics can't tell you that. Physics can tell you how they move, the interactions, and all that sort of thing, but it can't tells you it can't tell you what causes a proton to do what it does. So to that I say, what is doing the causing indeed? All right, he says the world consists in a vast causal network of phenomenal properties, underlying the physical laws that science postulates. The basic properties of the world are neither physical nor phenomenal, but the physical and the phenomenal are constructed out of them. From their intrinsic natures in combination, the phenomenal is constructed, and from their extrinsic relations, the physical is constructed. All right, so earlier we were talking about relation and and how physics describes things relationship and also how that information is really quite powerful. It might not be everything there is to know, but when we talk about the relationship between the notes and a song, we can see how important the relationship is. It's maybe it's the most important thing about a song. And maybe the relationship um, you know, between physical objects and laws, maybe that's super important as well. 
I think it is. But it's not, it's not the answer to everything. Um, what he says here is kind of interesting. He says that there's a vast causal network of phenomenal properties that underlie f- uh, physical laws. Um, and then he says that the most basic properties are not physical or phenomenal, which is interesting. This is the first time that David Chalmers is saying that, well, kind of something contrary to what he said before. Uh, he said that, first of all, he said that consciousness can't be reductively explained can't break consciousness down into any smaller bits. And he says you really can't do that with phys- with physical properties either beyond the things that we think are most fundamental. Space, time, energy, charge, spin, that kind of thing. So he can't be broken down any more than that. But then he turns around here and he does that. He says maybe the physical and the phenomenal are actually constructed out of something more basic. So I think that's a little bit of a pushback to what he said before about about you know there not being a reductive explanation. He seems to be proposing one. He said it might be that the phenomenal and the physical are actually made up of something something smaller, something intrinsic to both of them. He says from their intrinsic natures in combination, the phenomenal is constructed. And their, from their extrinsic relations, the physical is constructed. So it's the relationship That's interesting. So it's the relationship itself um, in combination, he says, that gives rise to two different types of qualities. Those external qualities are the things we call the physical, and the internal qualities are the things that we call consciousness or the phenomenal, right? And they're properties of, of one thing. So what is that one thing? See, that's that's... It goes along with the science. It goes along with, again, merging the, the, the uh, formulas and merging the theories and coming up with a simple, unified theory. That all, that all makes sense. And you think you might want to do that here, too, with the physical and the phenomenal. Find that underlying thing that unifies them. And it, and it keeps circling back to oneness. And I want to point that out. That's something from the mystic experience. All is one, right? One with the universe. Everything is one. And so... That's coming up here, and I just think that's worth pointing out. Whether we're talking about understanding consciousness, whether we're talking about the laws that govern physics, everybody's searching to reduce them to one thing, and all. And there's no objections. All the science seems to agree. That's what we're looking for, to simplify everything down to one thing, to roll all of this complexity up into one thing. And that's what the mystic experience tells you, and that's what... And that's what religion has, has told us for, you know, all the the Abrahamic religions in particular, um, and, and others as well. But there's only one God. There's only one thing. It's amazing. I. That's amazing. I take that thing to be consciousness. But I but I would um, certainly I'm certainly open to hearing Chalmers uh, Chalmers thoughts about what what might be more fundamental and even consciousness. Let's keep let's keep reading. He says, like the fundamental laws of physics. Psychophysical laws are eternal, having existed since the beginning of time. So no difference between the laws of physics and the laws that govern consciousness. Both of those things are eternal and have always been part of you know, the cosmos, whatever that means. And then, he, and then we uh, move on to this. He says, So far, the distinctions and divisions between consciousness and cognition have been stressed above all else. So by consciousness, he's talking about the hard problem. 
by cognition, he's talking about the easy problem. He's talking about the nuts and bolts of our brains and nervous systems and neurons and all that stuff. Um, he's saying that we've been, we've been making a distinction between these two all this time. We've been saying that consciousness is one thing and cognition is another thing. Then he goes on, he says, consciousness is mysterious. Cognition is not. Okay, that's why we call it the easy problem, because it's not mysterious. He says, cognition can be explained functionally. Consciousness cannot. Cognition is governed entirely by the laws of physics. Consciousness is governed by an independent psychophysical law. So we don't know what that psychophysical law is, but presumably this is what we're, what we're getting at. He says, one might get the impression that a theory of consciousness and a theory of cognition have little to do with one another. But this picture is misleading. There are deep and fundamental ties between consciousness and cognition. On one side, the contents of our conscious experience are closely related to the contents of our cognitive states. Whatever one has, whenever one has a green sensation, one has a corresponding green perception. On the other side, much cognitive activity can be centered on conscious experience. All right, so what he's doing here is he's, I don't know if I'd call this a bait and switch, but what I want to point out is basically what he's done. He said, look, in the beginning of this book, all the way up to this point, we've been, we've been making a distinction between consciousness and cognition. Your brain thinking and how it works versus the experiences that you're having, that they're not, they're not one thing. And they can't be explained the same way. You can explain cognition fit through the physical laws and everything supervenes like we've talked about. You can't do that with consciousness. So they're separate, they're different, they're distinct. Then what he's doing is saying, but they are really highly correlated. So maybe there's some information that we can get about consciousness by understanding what's going on in our brains, our perceptions. And he does that by saying, whenever one has a green sensation, when you have an experience of green, right? You have a green perception. So there's, there's, all, there's something going on in your experience that has a mirror in, in your brain. And if we could figure out the relationship between those two things, maybe we would know something more about consciousness than we know today. Okay, that's, that's kind of the gist. Um, he says, these relations between consciousness and cognition are not arbitrary, but systematic. An analysis of the systematic relationship may provide much of the basic material for theory of consciousness. Now, I think that might be going a bit far. I don't, I don't know that the relations between, between experience and the functioning of your brain, uh, I don't know how robust you can document that and whether that, whether that gives you much in, in the way of a theory of consciousness, but, uh, but Chalmers thinks that it's promising, and let's hear him out. Let's hear him out. He says, when two sets of properties are conceptually related, the existence of an explanation in terms of one does not render the other set irrelevant. In a sense, one of the explanations can be a retelling of the other due to the conceptual relations between the terms involved. So the important part of this, I think, is when he says one of the explanations can be a retelling of the other. Well, so what I mean is you have a conscious experience and you have a perception in your, in your brain, a representation in your brain, that those things are related. You know, we know your experience of whatever you're looking at 
is related to something you're actually looking at. We know that. And the way he's phrasing that here is that your experience might be a retelling of the kind of information processing going on in your brain. That the information processing and the experience are just two ways of talking about the same thing. And I think that's interesting. He goes on, he says, there, there is a psychological state underlying every phenomenal state. Okay, so, so I, I understand, I can follow that, and I can understand that there must be some relationship, and that those relationships are predictable. It's like I can put an object in front of me, and predictably my brain is going to see that object. And I'm going to predictably have an experience of that object. So there is a connection, and the connection isn't willy-nilly. It's systematic. It's predictable. So there is seemingly a law of some kind. Otherwise, it wouldn't be predictable. It would be random. That's not what we see. We see something that's, that's structured. He goes on, he says, an ultimate theory will not leave the connection at the level of brain state X produces conscious state Y. Instead, it will systematize the connection via some underlying laws. He says, when we finally have fundamental theories of physics and of consciousness in hand, we may have what truly counts as a theory of everything. The fundamental physical laws will explain the character of physical processes. The psychophysical laws will explain the conscious experiences that are associated, and everything else will be a consequence. And, th and this is his way of saying that um, it's not just about knowing all the physical, uh, physical laws and, uh, and objects. Um, you, can't, you can't say that by, no by knowing everything physical, everything else follows, even though science wants to do that. But what you could do is if you could say, I know everything about the physical laws and of consciousness, then everything else would follow, because you're not leaving anything out. You're explaining all the physical things, the material world, and you're also explaining your subjective experience. You're explaining consciousness. He says, it may be that we will find overarching laws that subsume both physics and consciousness into a grander theory, just as we found a theory that subsumed electricity and magnetism. And I think that's great. I, th I think that's promising, and I think that's, that's the angle that, that's worth pursuing. Um, he says, it may be possible that the laws that govern physics and the laws that govern consciousness are really one set of laws and that we will find the overarching laws that, that explain them both. And that rings true to me of, uh, again, uh, the progress of science and of the mystic intuition. Everything rolls up to one, to an elegant formula, into an elegant theory. He says, how can we discover the psychophysical laws that will constitute a theory of consciousness? Because consciousness is not directly observable, we cannot simply run experiments. So that, David, is a good point. How are we ever going to discover what these psychophysical laws are if we can't, if we can't do experiments? How are we going to do that? And he gives us some ideas. He says, The many lawful relationships between consciousness and cognition can provide much of what we need to get a theory of consciousness off the ground. The best way to get a handle on this relationship is to focus on phenomenal judgments. Um, just to define a phenomenal judgment, he's talking about um, being able to like, reflect immediately on your experience. 
So a phenomenal judgment is like you see something red and you, and you, I don't know if it's fair to say that you think this is red. It's, it's more quick than that. It's not something that you really think about at all. You just know. You look at something that's red and you know it's red. That's the phenomenal judgment he's talking about. That's something you can communicate to somebody else. It's, it's what strikes you immediately when you experience something. That's the judgment you're making. And that's how he's framing it. So you see something red and you think, that's red? That's a phenomenal judgment. He said, that is what we want to focus on. That's what we want to focus on. He says, these judgments are part of psychology, but they're closely bound up with phenomenology. And as such, they provide a bridge between the domains. By thinking about these judgments and the way they function in our own case, we can come up with a number of principles connecting the phenomenal to the psychological. Okay, so this is interesting. It's like, uh, again, the experience of color, the experience of red, that is subjective. There's no way of telling whether my experience of red is anything like yours. Um, There's no telling whether the color red even exists anywhere apart from my mind. Um, However, when you see light reflecting or absorbed in a certain way, you do have a perception of red, and you do have an an experience of red. They go together. So this is what he's saying. It's like when you have when you have this um, phenomenal judgment, when you so you encounter something and you know uh, and you and you know certain things about your experience of that thing, that there's a connection between what's going on in your brain, what he calls the psychology, and what's going on with your experience, and and it may be that judgment gives us a bridge between those two. So it's all perfectly muddy, but let's keep reading. He says, the most direct link is the link between consciousness and first-order judgment. That's that's like I just said, this is red. When I see something red, I think this is red. It's an immediate um, reaction. It it doesn't require any retrospect or any thinking at all. It just comes along with the experience. He says, I have argued that where there is consciousness, there is awareness. So consciousness is, is a phenom- phenomenological idea, and awareness is what Chalmers would call the psychological equivalent. So awareness is what's going on in your brain. Consciousness is what's going on inside. Okay, so he says, I have argued that where there is conscious, uh, consciousness, there is awareness. But the arrow goes both ways. Where there is awareness, there's generally consciousness. When my cognitive system represents a dog barking... I have an experience of a dog barking. When I am aware of heat around me, I feel hot. So he's saying this relationship going both ways between what's going on in your brain and what's going on in your consciousness. Um, The fact that it goes both ways supports even more. It gives more evidence for the fact that those things have uh, a structure and that that, that are related to one another. And And by learning about Awareness, we might be able to learn something about consciousness. He says, various structural features of consciousness correspond directly to structural features uh, represented in awareness. An individual's conscious experience is not a homogenous blob. It has a detailed internal structure. My visual field, for example, has a definite geometry to it. In three dimensions, I have experiences of shape, experiences of one thing being behind another, and other manifestations of the geometry of depth. 
My visual field consists in a vast mass of details, which fit together in an encompassing structure. So what he's pointing out here is that there is structure, there is some sort of, some sort of mathematical regularity, uh, some sort of scaffolding involved in your experiences, and also in your um, perceptions. It's not like, he says, it's not like your conscious experience is a homogenous blob. It's an experience of a cer- in a certain way, with certain limits. It's got a structure. It's got a geometry to it. Consciousness has a, has a geometry to it. I think that's funny. Because, for, first of all, that's the way Einstein described space-time. He said it has a geometry to it. It has this ma- mathematical, mathematical structure to it. And that's what we're seeing here. He, he, he's pointing that out because, because if there is a structure then there's something that can be learned about it. You know, if, if there is a structure there, then hypothetically we can figure out what that structure is. And if we know what it is and how it relates to our, uh, to our brain works, maybe it gives us some insight into this mystery that we, can't, that we can't touch, this thing we call consciousness. He says, crucially, all of these details are cognitively represented within what we can think of as the structure of awareness. Each of these structural details is accessible to the cognitive system, so each is represented in the contents of awareness. So he's saying that there's the structure of experience and the structure of awareness that they maybe can map onto each other, like a one-for-one relationship, something like that. And wouldn't, wouldn't that be something? Wouldn't that, wouldn't that be progress, you know? He says the structure of consciousness is mirrored and the structure of awareness. He says, I will call this the principle of structural coherence. This is a systematic relationship between phenomenology and psychology. Okay, so now he's calling it the principle of structural coherence. The fact that what's going on in uh, the physical world that you're experiencing in, uh, through your brain, let's say, a nervous system, that that corresponds and maybe maps directly onto a structure in your experience, in your consciousness, that this coherence between the two, between the psychological and the phenomenological, uh, will give us a way of understanding consciousness and give us a way of understanding how consciousness and the material world um, are related. He says, with the principles of coherence in place, there is a foundation for empirical research on conscious experience. The coherence between consciousness and awareness can serve as a background principle in the search for the physical correlates of consciousness. This principle is being used to provide a bridge from features of physical processes to features of experience. In order to explain some specific aspect of consciousness, we need only explain the corresponding aspect of awareness. The bridging principle does the rest of the work. Alright, so I can see the I can see the wishful thinking here, but I'm not sure I can go with it entirely. Um, and I'll tell you why. This is what strikes me as strange. So he's talking about this principle of coherence as, as though it's the law, that, that, that the psychophysical law that he's pointing to that might be able to help us explain consciousness. And what he says here is that the principle, um, that the prin- that the principle of uh, coherence that that it helps in the search for what he calls the physical correlates of consciousness. He says it. 
You know, he doesn't say that the coherence uh, principle allows us to search for consciousness. He says it allows us to search for the physical correlates of consciousness. And that and that's good. And it's good to understand that. And, it, and it's helpful. And I'm sure, you know, that, that that will be progress. But is it going to tell us what consciousness is? I think he admitted it doesn't. He says it's a search for the physical correlates of consciousness, not for consciousness itself. Progress, maybe. But is it the answer? I don't, I don't know. I don't think so. And then he says this towards the end. He says, in order to explain some specific aspects of consciousness, we need only explain the corresponding aspects of awareness. And that's him pointing back to this relationship between consciousness and awareness. But I... I feel like he's trying to convince me or trying to convince himself that that's a satisfactory answer. Um, but, but the language is clear, you know. He's only he's saying, uh, in order to explain some specific aspect of consciousness, so see how he's backing down from explaining consciousness as a whole. He's saying, we might be able to explain some specific aspect of it by explaining awareness, by explaining what's going on in the brain. Like, man, I don't, I don't think so, and I think that that, and it's certainly possible that I'm missing something. It's certainly possible that that Chalmers made this clear, and I've and I'm missing it. I just don't know how we can say how we can make sense of that when we said for the first two episodes, what Chalmers said for the first half of the book, that consciousness does not depend on the physical. So by understanding something physical in the brain, how can we understand consciousness, even a some specific aspect of it, David? I don't know. I don't know what it is we're explaining when we, when we map the structure of consciousness to awareness. I don't know what it is we're explaining, but I'm not sure it's consciousness. It may be, may be something else, but I'm not sure it's consciousness. All right, he says, Once we have this account of the relevant structure of color awareness in hand, then the coherence principle tells us this structure will be mirrored in the structure of color experience. Says a functional account of visual processing serves as an indirect account of the structure of phenomenal color space. So I think indirect is another way of saying, you know, not explicit. So he's like, if we can figure out this structure of color awareness, what's going on in our brains, what what the limitations are, what the geometry is of that space in our brains, then we'll know something about about our experience of color because they're related you know there's a law that relates that relates the two so it seems like what he's describing to me is a kind of rosetta stone of consciousness he's saying you know if you guys don't know rosetta stone uh, well, beyond the uh, beyond the software and the app um, that that originates in ancient egypt where we we had all these hieroglyphs that we couldn't read uh, you know, we didn't we didn't know how to we'd forgotten how to read the ancient Egyptian language, and then we found the Rosetta Stone, which had a passage written in hieroglyphs, and a passage written in Coptic Egyptian, which is a more modern language, and then a passage written in Greek, and they were all the same passage written um, in different languages. That's how we were able to find out how to read hieroglyphs because we had the Rosetta Stone. That's what I think he's talking about. It's something like that. When he says, if we could find the structure of color awareness, that's like, that's like the hieroglyphs. Or excuse me, that would be like the, the Coptic or the Greek that we can read. And we're trying, to, we're trying to use that information to read the hieroglyphs. Consciousness is the hieroglyphs in this, in this uh, analogy. So 
that is seems to be what he's talking about is that this that the connection between awareness and consciousness the the connection between our brains the psychological and our inner experience the subjective you know conscious experience that if we can map the structures of the two and we know how they relate just like we talked about with betweenness and Ian McGilchrist later then we'll understand the song we'll understand how everything relates and that's something all right he goes on he says this counts as a kind of non-reductive explanation, taking the existence of consciousness for granted and trying to explain some of its properties. Now, he promised us a non-reductive explanation, or at least, at least the beginnings of a non-reductive explanation of consciousness. And I can't help but feeling a little disappointed by this language. This counts as a kind of non-reductive explanation. Like, uh, David, man, that doesn't sound like doesn't sound like you believe it, man. This counts as a kind of non-reductive explanation. Um, you know, maybe it does. I just, I just, I don't know, man. I'm just taking issue with the with the language. It just seems a little wishy-washy. It reminds me another of another passage from the Bible where where Jesus said, "You're neither hot nor cold, so I shall spew you from my mouth." Um, and David, I mean, don't, no disrespect. I'm just telling you what's popping in my head here. All right, he says, we will not have explained consciousness itself, but we will have explained much of what is special about a particular phenomenal domain. And there you have it. I mean, he's, he's admitted it himself that this non-reductive explanation that he promised, uh, what we're leading up to in the last, uh, the last episode, um, he's saying it won't give us an explanation of consciousness. What it will do is sort of map consciousness out and, and let us know more about that particular that particular domain. So it's something, something more than we have today. Is it an explanation of consciousness? I don't, I don't think so. Uh, but it's definitely progress. It's more than we understand today. And then he goes on. He says neuroscience can give an account of all those features of experience that are objectively communicable. The very communicability implies that they are mirrored in physical features of the system and indeed in features of awareness. So this relates back to that uh, phenomenal judgment thing I was telling you about. Like if I see something red and just in seeing it, the exp having that experience of it, um, I know uh, that it's red. I, I sort of have this unconscious thought that is red. That's the kind of um, uh, the phenomenal judgment that, that he was referring to earlier. And that's what he says is communicable. I can tell you, hey, that's red, right? He said the very fact that you can do that, that you can say, hey, that's red, implies that the experience is mirrored in your, in your brain, in, in features of awareness. So this is more evidence uh, for, this, for this structure and the possibility of mapping the structure of information processing in your brain and your experience and your consciousness. He says, using these methods, we might even get some insight into what it's like to be a bat. Functional organization can tell us much about the kind of information that a bat has access to, the kinds of discriminations it can make, the way it categorizes things, the most salient properties in its perceptual field, and about the way in which it uses it. Eventually, we should be able to build up a detailed picture of the structure of awareness in a bat's cognitive system. 
by the principle of structural coherence, we will then have a good idea about the structure of a bat's experience. We will not have a clear conception of the intrinsic nature of the experiences, but we will know quite a bit. And this is interesting. And This is, um, you know, it's maybe optimistic. That may be the word. Um, but, it, but it goes back to kind of where we started this conversation about consciousness. You know, he said that for something to be conscious in the beginning is for there to be something it's like to be what you are. There's something that it's like to be a human being. And then he would, he, he would go on to say that this problem, this mind-body problem, or this problem of other minds comes up where even if you can say that you are conscious and you believe yourself to be conscious, you have no way of verifying anybody else's. And you don't know what it's like to be anybody else. You don't know what it's like to be a, an animal. There's no way of knowing that. And here he says... But with structural coherence, with this principle of structural coherence, we might actually be able to know something more about what it's like to be a bat. We might actually be able to know something about what it's like to be somebody else or something else. And to do that, we simply map out uh, the information processing in the brain. We map out the cognitive stuff. We, we already know, or let's say we have, have been able to work out how, they, how those structures map onto experience. And then we can sort of step back and look at the way the map of a bat's experience compares to, let's say, the map of ours. And we'll know something more about what it's like to be a bat. So we won't know what it's like to be a bat, but we'll know quite a bit. And I agree with that. To some degree, I agree with that. But I don't think that, even though that is more information than we have today, I don't think that's going to tell you what it's like to be a bat. It certainly doesn't explain the consciousness of a bat. It doesn't. It doesn't let you in on that on that mystery. Um, he says such a principle will act as an epistemic lever, leading from knowledge about physical processes to knowledge about experience. So he thinks that this coherence principle and mapping out the relationship will will allow us to know something more about experience. It won't be conscious. It won't be an, an explanation of consciousness itself, but it will be more information than we have today. All right. So rapid fire here to the end, guys. This this section um, I call coherence as a psychophysical law. Um, this is something that was sort of uh, anticipated earlier, but he's, he definitely wants to say that this coherence principle that he just talked about is this bridging law. What he was what he was calling for earlier when he said there might be a psychophysical law that we can learn that will tell us how our experience uh, connects to the physical world. And this coherence principle might very well be this, this law we're looking for. He says this, If consciousness is always accompanied by awareness, and vice versa, one is led to suspect that something systematic is going on. We can therefore put forward the hypothesis that this coherence is a law of nature. In any system, consciousness will be accompanied by awareness, and vice versa. The remarkable correlation between the structure of consciousness and the structure of awareness seems too specific to be an accident. It is natural to infer an underlying law. For any system, the structure of consciousness will mirror and be mirrored by the structure of awareness. All right, this next section is called 
what is it we're aware of? Information? Question mark. All right, here we go. He says, information spaces are abstract spaces. They are not part of the physical or phenomenal world, but we can find information in both the physical and the phenomenal world. So that's interesting. Talking about information, and that is an abstract idea. Information all by itself, try to imagine what that is. Is your, is your mind's eye as blank as mine? What is information without a context? What is information if it's not information of something specific? What is it all by itself? I'll give you a minute. Still nothing? Exactly. Exactly. Information is this, is this very abstract idea. And he says information is not part of the physical or phenomenal world. Um, well, that's a harder statement to agree with or disagree with. I don't know what exactly is meant by that, but I think it's fair to say that information apart from a context, that just information all by itself, abstract, I don't think that is part of the physical world. And I don't think that is part of the phenomenal world either. The phenomenal world has to do with meaning, you know, how, how things seemed to me, you know, in my experience. Uh, the physical world is full of information, but it's all specific information. So I guess, I guess I can go with that, saying that information is abstract and at that level isn't really a part of the physical or the phenomenal world. But I also agree that we can find information in both the physical world and in the phenomenal world. Um, this goes without saying, if we go back to our example of Mary, the, the scientist studying color vision, there's all sorts of physical information that she's learned uh, about frequency and wavelength of light, about sp the speed of light, about you know the absorption of colors and, and all, all these details, physical information about it, yes. And she sees the color red and she experiences what it's like to see the color red and she knows something new. She knows something more about the color red. And I would agree, that's new information. So you can see there is information bound up in the physical world and in the phenomenal world too. And yet, information as an abstract idea doesn't exist in either of those realms. Does it exist at all? That's something that goes back to Plato, you know, the world of forms idea from Plato. So let's see where Chalmers is going with this. He says, it seems intuitively clear that information is realized throughout the physical world. Oh, interesting. So now we're seeing that word realize coming back up. Remember Rosenberg from earlier? Let me start over. It seems intuitively clear that information is realized throughout the physical world. We can see my light switch as realizing a two-state information space with its states up and down. One can see information realized in a thermostat, a book, or a telephone line. All right, so I think he's using this word realized exactly like Rosenberg did. Remember how I said it's something like to be embodied or to be made real, to be brought into reality. That's what realized seems to mean. So he says it seems intuitively clear that information is realized throughout the physical world. And that's kind of what I meant when I said in the physical world, you don't have information absent a context. You have all sorts of information, specific information everywhere. Everywhere you look, information. And he gives this example of a light switch. It's like, I have this light switch. and it's, It represents two states, information. If I have that switch flipped up, or if I have that switch flipped down, you, think of, you can think about that like a, like a bit. 
one or zero. That's a piece of information. It's not a one and zero, an up and down, all by itself, right? It's not information all by itself. It's information that's tied to something physical, something realized, something made real. In this case, a light switch. So information, in order for it to exist exactly, in order for it to be experienceable, it has to be realized. And by this, he seems to mean made manifest in the world. And I just can't help but saying that's such a mystical thing to say. So information all by itself doesn't exist until it shows up on a thermostat or written in a book or coming across the telephone line. So then there's something physical that it, that it can manifest in. And that, that is what makes information information somehow. It's very weird. What does that mean? How is that not a super mystical thing to say? All right, and then uh, Chalmers defines information. He says, information is a difference that makes a difference. All right, so the best way I can uh, make that clear to you is um, I can talk about my experience in the, in the float tank. Uh, when I was laying down in the darkness trying to uh, forget that I had a body and trying to clear my mind of all thoughts. And there were periods of time where I was just awareness and nothing else. You know, it was just a blank slate of just waiting for something to happen. I was I was aware and knew I was aware, but, it, you know, everything else was just blank. And then right, right at the end of my float uh, time, a little... Uh, a little musical chime kind of rings out to let you know your time is running out. And all of a sudden, I, after two hours of perfect silence, I hear a little faint chime through, through my earplugs. And that was the difference that made a difference, right? I, I couldn't even tell you how much time was going by. I was sitting there with no experiences, nothing changing, nothing different, just a static state, and, and it was like stasis. And then I heard that chime, and it it broke me out of it. It was the difference that made a difference. So that's what I mean. It's like if something becomes static for too long, then you get used to it. You know, it's like uh, white noise or something. You don't even hear it anymore. You don't even you don't even experience it anymore. But all it takes is for there to be one little change, and it just zaps your attention back to it. Um, so information is the difference that makes a difference. It's something that's changed a state. Information is like transformation, something like that. He says, uh, physical realization is the most common way to think about information embedded in the world. We can also find information realized in our phenomenology. Thus, we can see phenomenal states, as well as physical states, as realizing information. Okay, so phenomenal states and physical states, that's our, our conscious experience and the material cosmos. That those things are realizing information. What is he saying here, guys? He's saying that there's something like information that exists in this abstract way, apart from the physical and phenomenal worlds. Uh, upon which the phenomenal and physical are both based. Information is that thing, that, that again, that non-reducible thing that Chalmers was saying for half the book didn't exist. Now he's saying maybe it's information. 
Maybe the phenomenal and the physical come from information. And that's the most fundamental thing. And so information exists in this abstract way, but doesn't really exist, does it? It has to be realized. It has to be embodied. It has to be made physical. It has to be manifest. Then it becomes some specific information. Man, that is so mystical. So mystical. It's like the idea that there's some undifferentiated um, force. You know, there's some... There's some undifferentiated mass of potential, this infinite blob of potential that that exists somewhere in some place, you know, you might call non-being, someplace apart, you know, infinitely distant from us. And that what it does is it realizes itself into being. It takes this undifferentiated information that it is, and it makes it into some specific information. And what is it doing there? What, what do I mean by that? I mean, it's become physically real. It's been manifest into the world. And now it's no longer undifferentiated God. It's specific being. In both cases, we're talking about information. Information as God or information as the world. We're talking about a transformation back and forth between those two things. That is the most mystical thing I could possibly imagine. And here we have an allusion to it coming from... Coming from the scientist David Chalmers. Um, and it all hinges on, on this idea of realizing information. Realizing. I mean, just break that word down. Realizing. To make real. That's what, it, that's what we're talking about. By real, we mean physically, materially real. I'm just imagining, I'm just imagining God as this not not physically real thing, you know, this abstract thing. And then I'm imagining the Big Bang, right? I'm imagining it becoming real, you know, making itself real, realizing information. God, such a beautiful and strange idea. All right, he goes on, he says, This treatment of information brings out a crucial link between the physical and the phenomenal. Whenever we find an information space realized phenomenally, we find the same information space realized physically. So he says, take a color experience. We find the same space realized in the brain processes underlying the experience. We can see the same information state realized both, both physically and phenomenally. So this goes back to that structure. If we can relate the physical to the phenomenal, if we can relate, uh, you know, the... Um, uh, our, our conscious experience to the physical world like that, then whatever it is, whatever information it is that's being manifest in our experience, that's phenomenal information, that, that's the same information that's being realized physically. So there's this, there's this new mystery here that, that emerges. It's, it's like, again, two sides of a coin. Uh, there's something, something we're calling information, and it gets realized in two ways. It gets realized phenomenally and physically. So it becomes materially real. That's the material cosmos. And it becomes aware at the same time. And, and they're the same thing. I mean, again, if you can see the size of my eyes right now, just wide, wide open, that is the most mystical thing I can imagine. And there you have it. He says... We do not know how these states are coded, 
and thus we do not know exactly how the information space is physically realized, but we know that it must be realized. Okay, so this is an, another admission, and good for him, but he's saying we don't know how information is, quote, coded into the physical world. We don't know how it's coded into consciousness. So we don't know any of that, really, but we just know that it must be, because oh, I don't exactly know why. Um, because the cosmos exists, because we know it exists, because we have conscious awareness of it, um, there's something that's been physically realized, so there must be information behind it. I mean, something like that? I don't know. It's like this this backward sort of a deductive approach. And to me, it leads to what Chalmers calls, calls the causal flux, this infinite causal flux. You know, we're calling it information now, but for all intents and purposes, we're, we're talking about God. He says, it need not be the case that information is encoded in small structure of neurons. It is quite possible for information to be physically realized in a holistic fashion, as one finds, for example, with certain holographic forms of information storage. Okay, so what he means by this is that uh, the information we're talking about, um, when it's realized in the world, that it doesn't need to be realized in a particular physical object, that it might be realized in the entire system. So what I mean by this is, and if you haven't heard of holographic universe theory, you, you may want to look it up. It's really interesting. What it's going to tell us here is that, um, is that the, the physical cosmos is like a projection. You can imagine a, um, you know, a holograph, a projector projecting this 3D image like Star Wars up, up into space. Um, and that the information that is contained in this hologram is available everywhere. It's encoded into the hologram. It, it's the hologram itself, something like that. So this information that I would call God, this undifferentiated information that can become realized, that can, that can become physical reality. That's what David Chalmers is saying. Um, <laughs> that, that, that that information might actually be encoded in the entire system, in the entire cosmos. Again, quite the mystical thing. Um, I think I agree with that. I think that rings uh, true in the term, in the, uh, the kind of fractal terms that we sometimes talk about mystic experience through. It's like what the information's everywhere. So what you can find in one place, you can find anywhere and everywhere. And that's how God seems. And that's also how the mystic experience plays out. You know, when you feel like you're one with the universe, that's the kind of thing I'm getting at. All right, then he goes on, he says, we might even suggest that this double realization so being realized physically and phenomenally, is the key to the fundamental connections between physical processes and conscious experience. So information is realized in this bifurcated way, just like our brains are split in, in two, you know, one hemisphere and the other. It's bifurcated into physical and phenomenal. And that might be the key to figuring out what, what information is, you know, if information causes the physical and phenomenal, then we can study the physical and the phenomenal and try to figure out what that information is. Then maybe we'll know what consciousness is. All right, he says, we might put as a basic principle that information in the actual world has two aspects, a physical and a phenomenal. 
We will need to know precisely what it is for an information space to be physically realized. But all this is part of the process of developing a theory. So again, another admission of, of the gaps in this. He's saying that we will need to know precisely what it is for information to be realized physically. What, what does he even mean? He's saying, what do I mean by that? What do I mean that information can be physically realized? That's, that's the magic that I was just describing. That's the way that we describe the Big Bang, something from nothing. That's what he's talking about. It's like, we still need to know what that is. But it's all part of developing a theory. That's what he's saying. So that's for the next, that's for the next generation of scientists to figure out. Then he goes on, he says, some other important questions concerning the ontology of the view. So this is, ontology is my favorite branch of philosophy, but it's, it's, the, it's the study of origins, where things come from, you know, uh, metaphysics, that kind of thing. So he says there are some ontological concerns he said, does this um, sort of panpsychist view, does it claim that the physical, the phenomenal, or both are dependent on the informational? So you might have a supervenience relationship like, like we talked about before, where everything except for consciousness seems to, seems to depend on the physical laws. He's saying maybe those physical laws depend on information or depend on informational laws. There might be something deeper here. I couldn't agree more. I think there is something deeper here. He said, it may just be that there, that there is a way of seeing information itself as fundamental. If this idea could be made to pan out, it could be that in some way the physical is derived on the informational, and the ontology of this view could be worked out. So here he's saying that maybe the most fundamental thing isn't what we think it is. It's not space-time and energy and charge. It's something deeper that actually unifies the physical, all that stuff, space-time, energy, and charge, with the non-physical, with consciousness. And that thing could be information. What? So I would, I would call that God. But either way, baffling. Baffling to try to wrap your head around. He says... If there is experience associated with information processing systems, even with thermostats, there is a probability, or there is, it's probable uh, that there is experience everywhere. Wherever there is a causal interaction, there is information. And wherever there is information, there is experience. I love that. I love that for lots of reasons, but... What comes to my mind is something that I came up with uh, shortly after a mystic experience. I talked about it on the podcast before, but it's, it's this idea, this sort of thought experiment of what I call the being generator. And it's real simple and real complicated at the same time, so I'll, I'll do my best here. It's like this. Assuming consciousness is all there is, I'm going to call that God. And we already said consciousness experiences. That's what, that's what it does. So consciousness experiences itself. It's something like saying God experiences God. Now, if you think about your experience, anytime you experience something, you're changed by that experience. Just like in the example of Mary earlier, thinking she knew everything there is to know about color experience. Then she sees color and she learns something else. Something like that. Um, so the being generator is like this. Consciousness experiences consciousness, experiences itself, and it's changed by that experience. So consciousness actually becomes something different 
after it experiences itself. I can't be more specific than that because this is all very, very high-level philosophical nonsense, but it goes like this. Consciousness experiences itself and is changed by it. Then it, it, But remember, what consciousness does is it experiences. So it continues to experience itself. That's all it does. Consciousness experiences forever. So if, I, if God experiences God and is changed, then it, its next experience of itself is of something new. So that is illustrating for you that there's information there. So what, what's changed in God is something new. It's information. And every time it experiences itself and changes and experiences itself again, it learns information. And in doing so, it changes more. And it experiences that new self, and it changes more, and it experiences that new self. And every time it does that, it's generating information, information about itself, okay? So it's all self-contained. The system of consciousness is all self-contained. And I'm going to read this to you again so you can see why I make that comparison. He says, wherever there is a causal interaction, there is information. And wherever there is information, there is experience. Okay, so you've got consciousness interacting with itself. That causes itself to change, and that creates information. Where there is cause, there is information. That's what I'm talking about. And what that information is, is something that can be known. And the process of knowing things, that's what we call consciousness. And this is exactly what Chalmers says. Where there is causal interaction, there is information. And where there is information, there is experience. That's exactly the same thing. Chalmers is saying exactly the same thing I said when I came out of my sort of mystic uh, intuition and wrote wrote that weird thought down. He's saying it in other words, but basically exactly what I, what the intuition I had in that mystic encounter. So I share that with you because... It's cool, and it's cool. He goes on, he says, One can find information states in a rock when it expands and and contracts, or even in the different states of an electron. So again, remember, go back to my example of like white noise or something. Um, I have another example. I was driving to work one time, and a long drive to work, and it was the same drive every day, and I, I just kind of zoned out, just unconsciously driving. And sometimes I'd snap out of it, and I couldn't, remember where I was like what exit did I just pass how much longer do I have to go like I was driving but I was nowhere I was gone um so until something like stood out at me it's like oh you know you you were expecting to see this landmark and instead you saw this one until I saw that thing I didn't expect the difference that makes a difference as Chalmers said um until I see that my I was just on autopilot and then and then my consciousness would get sucked back into reality, uh, for lack of a better word, with new information. And so um, it, it's always about a change. You know, a change will kick you out of that state of, uh, you know, that, 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 again, you're sitting there listening to white noise and, and suddenly this, you know, the track changes. Um, you, you might have forgotten you were hearing anything and then suddenly be reminded. It's about the transformation. It's about the change itself that, that allows you, seemingly allows you to be conscious it's change that you're conscious of, and that is information. That's all information is. And so he says if a rock expands or contracts, it's changed, right? So you can see there's information there, and where there's information, there must be experience. Same thing with electron. So an electron could, could have a charge of 
you know, positive or negative. It could have a spin up or a spin down. If it changes from a spin up to a spin down, that's information. That change is something that gets experienced. Very, very strange and also very beautiful. All right, we're almost there, guys. He, he says, it is sometimes suggested that information is fundamental to the physics of the universe. And even that physical properties and laws may be derivative from informational properties and laws. If this is so, we may be able to give information a more serious role in our ontology. No shit, a more serious role. Maybe the most serious role, right? If, if information is the most fundamental thing, that it's got the most serious role in, in explaining everything. All right, he says, Physics tells us nothing about what mass is or what charge is. It simply tells us the range of different values that these features can take on. As far as physical theories are concerned, specific states of mass or charge might as well be pure informational states. That's interesting. He says, physics makes no commitment about the way these states are realized. Something more is needed. Physics isn't telling us how something you know, non-material, how something in, in a state of sheer potential, undifferentiated information, how does that become specific information? How does it become realized in the world? How does it become real? Physics doesn't say. He says, it's a strangely beautiful conception a picture of the world as pure informational flux. The world is simply differences and causal and dynamic relations among those differences. The world is simply differences and the causal dynamic relations among those differences. Amazing. Can you imagine? Is that, is that what the world is? If so, if not, or if so, <laughs> equally amazing. He says, experience is information from the inside. Physics is information from the outside. God damn, that's good. All right, that's a good way to end there, uh, David. But I'm going to end um, in my traditional way. I'm going to read you my, my prepared conclusion here. You let me know what you think. Chalmers and I started out on opposite ends of this great mystery we call consciousness. Chalmers started with the existence of consciousness and tried to describe how you can get the cosmos and the laws that, get, that gave rise to it from there. I, on the other hand, arrived at consciousness last. For me, it began with a mystic experience that showed me the knower and what it knows are one inseparable thing. Knower and knowledge as I wrestled with this paradox, I slowly came to understand that the connection between knower and known is experience. A step further brought me round to Chalmers' position as I realized that experience and consciousness are but two words for the same thing. The mystery that remains for both Chalmers and I, however, is this. What is experience? It might be put what is knowledge, or as Chalmers did, what is information? It is information, after all, that constitutes knowledge. It is information that we are conscious of. 
I looked back at my notebook and read through my thoughts after having a mystic experience. And I see my, uh, myself seeking to understand the nature of consciousness, of experience, and how that relates to the material world. So in my notebook, I asked this question. I said, is it a leap to understand knowledge as information held within a knower? And to suppose a matrix-like scenario where material reality is a system of symbols that encode that information. So I then wade into the waters of abstraction, trying to understand just what the hell information is. It is something that can be experienced, to be sure. But experience takes many forms, as does the information gained. It seemed to me that information transforms with experience. It isn't one thing or another, but something more like potential, like it could be anything. In this way, information became something like God in my estimation. It is undifferentiated potential, unformed and ever ready to become something. That experience and information transform gave me this eerie sense of stimulus response, of motion, and of will. It seemed to me that information is alive somehow. Alive is an interesting way of putting it, a point to which Chalmers and I seem to agree. Chalmers says that consciousness is realized in the physical world that it is expressed somehow in physical terms as well as phenomenal terms. Chalmers and I both use the word encode to describe the relationship between information and how that information is realized in the physical world. I find it funny that Chalmers uses realize and encode here when so many religious words could have been used instead. Think about words like incarnate manifest, and embody. All those come to mind immediately. Isn't it really this that Chalmers is describing when he says that information is realized? By this, doesn't he mean something, um, doesn't he mean something that, that's fundamental to reality is somehow transmogrified from the deepest non-material abstraction into the real world? Like God being made flesh as the Bible said about Jesus? Like the creator gods of old manifesting the cosmos from nothing, as if by magic? It is this magic, however, that Chalmers leaves unexplained. Just how the causal flux, as he put it, exists and makes itself material and conscious remain a mystery. Chalmers at least admits that the mystery is there and that it is a mystery, Unfortunately, his grappling with that mystery, his wrestling with God, sheds light only on the, quote, physical correlates of consciousness by his own admission, not consciousness itself. Chalmers offers a sort of Rosetta Stone bridging the physical to the non-physical, stating that understanding how awareness and consciousness are linked, quote, counts as a kind of non-reductive explanation. In this, however, as Chalmers himself says, quote, we, will, we will not have explained consciousness itself, but we will have explained much 
of what is special about a particular phenomenal domain. So the quest remains open. We have what might be a compass and key to draw a map of what consciousness might be. But a map is just a map. It doesn't tell you where you are, let alone what you are. And so the magic of consciousness remains magical. And I'll end with this. It's a gentleman on Twitter that I have interactions with from time to time. I really like his, uh, his tweets. A lot of the time they're about consciousness, and Chalmers comes up quite a lot. Um, your everyday anti-physicalist is how he looks on uh, Twitter, but uh, his, uh, his name is at Bugrib, B-U-G-R-I-B. Um, he said this, and I think this sums it up. Bug Rib said, I really like Dave Chalmers, but to be perfectly honest, he's too much of a physicalist for me. Way too much, I, even. I concur, Bug Rib. I concur. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work thinking it's hard and full of uncertainties but i'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze see what i did there let's find out together in the next episode <laughs>